I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we are talking about Chambers Bay and the future of USGA venue selection. The U.S. Women's Amateur was just held at Chambers Bay this past week, and I was there for the last day of it. It was a delightful experience. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but also talk about the general context of venue selection for the big championships that the USGA runs PGA of America as well, and where Chambers Bay might fit into that and other courses as well. I think it's a a kind of rich topic right now. There's a lot of things happening on that front. But to discuss all of that with me today, I have none other than Andy Johnson. Andy, how you doing? You're 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 back. Uh, you're grounded again after after an active few weeks of travel here. Yeah, yeah, back uh, back at the in laws. So uh, you know, from live from the in laws uh, basement, just a, a place the podcaster belongs. You know, if you haven't recorded a podcast from your own parents' basement or your in laws' basement, you're not really doing podcasting, right? So the stereotype is true. Yeah, exactly. How how uh, how was the weekend? At you've been on the road too. How was the weekend at Chambers? It was fantastic. I mean, I scheduled this not only because I live fairly close. I'm about a two and a half hour drive from Chambers here in Portland, but also because I I, remember, I think you and I discussed this. I attended that live event in Portland, right? So I, I spent a few days there covering that event. And the first thing I did when I came back from that, when that concluded, is I reached out to Julia Pine at the USGA. By the way, Julia Pine, as good at her job as, as anybody in golf, she's she's fantastic, reached out to her and said, hey, how about a credential to the U.S. Women's Amateur? I need a palate cleanser yeah. <laughs> after uh, what I've just experienced at Live." And it was just that. It was, it was really wonderful. I wish I had gotten to be there more, but we just had a trip to Sand Hills, uh, the Nebraska Sand Hills, uh, this past week as well that we needed to do. And so I, I came back home on Friday evening and put in an appearance at home <laughs> with the kids a little bit and then left again on Saturday afternoon to get up to Chambers Bay, stayed the night there and uh, was able to be there for the entire final match at Chambers Bay between Saki Baba and Monet Chun. Now it just lasted 27 holes, which was a bit of a bummer. I wish it had gone the full 36, you know, being at Chambers during the sunset hours and, Watching golf would have just been wonderful, but Saki Baba had other ideas. She was she was really really dominant on the weekend, just a terrific player, and uh, and so that was fun to watch in its own right. But uh, got a good look at Chambers Bay as well. Yeah, what what were your what are your impressions of Chambers Bay? It's, uh, it's a place that I haven't been. Um, obviously, I I enjoyed watching the the U.S. Open out there, but uh, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, on course and off course controversy with that one. And, uh, and, yeah. uh, I, you know, the, the, obviously they've put in a lot of work, uh, since that U.S. Open, they've, uh, resodded their greens with a POA bent mixture. So the greens were obviously the divisive topic 
um, among a few other things out there. But how how was it? Well, it was incredible. But what, why don't we start with like, how does it look on TV? You know, the, the 2015 U.S. Open, which which was held at Chambers Bay and was pretty controversial, is not one that I really watched. I I, I kind of missed that open. What did Chambers Bay look like on TV for that U.S. Open? What do you remember of that? I mean, it was it it looked great. I think that's always the thing is like when you talk about a venue, it's interesting because like there there are so many factors that go into it. Is how is it for the competitors? How is it for the championship conducting a venue there? Like in terms of infrastructure, everything. How is it for the crowds? How is it for you know people that attend and pay ticket pay for tickets and go? And then how how does it show on TV? I think from the television standpoint. It showed really well. Like, you know, any time that you have golf on a body of water, that's always going to provide amazing visuals. And then with with the weather in the Pacific Northwest in, in the summer, it's so predictable that, like, you know you're going to get a firm tournament. And, and out there, the course is designed to have balls bounce in and bounce. And that golf course, I, I'll never forget the, the videos leading in when people were bouncing balls, you know, like a basketball uh, on the turf but like that's the thing about about that golf course is that it I, I it's hard to look at the leaderboard and especially the demands that were placed on competitors in 2015 and not think that it deserved another shot after if it fixed the greens right you know especially because like we're not talking this course isn't in New York. This course isn't surrounded by like a plethora of championship golf options. This is a golf course in a large, huge part of the country that's devoid of championship golf, but also affords any tournament the excellent primetime viewing for for the biggest media markets. That's the thing is like I just like I I really wonder like you know obviously having an event in in New York City is is great for a local market and they can go but I'd imagine that more people from New York City would watch an event in Washington because of the hours that it would be on in, in a time of the year when there isn't a lot of stuff on TV. Yeah, West Coast is great for TV viewing across the nation basically, right? We hear people say this every time there's a tournament in California. Oh yeah, this is these are great hours. This is primetime golf, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's just interesting that we haven't seemed to figure out a major championship venue in the Pacific Northwest that really sticks. You know, there have been a couple of majors at Sahali Country Club, which is a really heavily treed course. It's very narrow. I believe the 1998 PGA Championship was held there. And, you know, it hasn't really made an impression that really that course has not found its way into the Rota for the PGA Championship or the U.S. Open. Pumpkin Ridge was another potential major venue. It held a couple of U.S. Women's Opens, but never got a U.S. Open or a PGA Championship. And now Pumpkin Ridge is fully in the hands of Live Golf, right? <laughs> That's now going to be uh, what looks like an annual venue. And and there's a thirst for for high-level golf in Portland. You know, there's a great... Uh, LPGA Tour tournament, uh, the the Cambia Portland Classic that has been held mostly at Columbia Edgewater in, in recent years. And that's a pretty cool venue and it's a very good event. There's been a Corn Ferry Tour event in Portland that was held at Pumpkin Ridge, but that's no longer going. 
And and so I think that this region is just underserved. I know that everybody feels like their region is underserved by golf tournaments, but the Pacific Northwest has two really big cities, Portland and Seattle, that have active golf cultures. And I feel like it's a missed opportunity not to be taking big championships to this region on a regular basis. And I believe that Chambers Bay is far and away the best candidate for a consistent major championship venue. Being there for the U.S. Women's Amateur on Sunday, my big overall impression of this course, and I think this comes through on TV as well, it's this huge arena, right? There's this walking path on top of a bluff that overlooks the course, and the course is sort of in this bowl that's right against Puget Sound and and the railroad that runs along the shore of Puget Sound. And so when you're in there, when you get up high, you can see the whole course and all the action is just kind of happening in this huge bowl. Now, a little bit of history for this site. The reason that the site is shaped in this kind of unique arena-like way is that before it was a golf course, for decades, it was the site of a mining operation, sand and gravel and, and stuff like that. And so essentially that activity took a huge bite out of this piece of land, pushed the big bluff back inland so that it formed this bowl or this arena that the golf course now sits in. And I haven't really been to a golf course that is quite like this. I really can't think of a comparison. You know, it's a unique looking and feeling place. It's really, really beautiful. The views are sensational. I thought it was a great place to watch a golf tournament. The architecture of the course is also very interesting, and we can get into details of that if you want. But as far as the spectator experience is concerned, I thought it was fantastic for a U.S. women's amateur with everybody kind of walking down the fairways without ropes and and following the play like that. The problem will become for a tournament of the size of a U.S. Open that the galleries are going to be pushed to the sides, right? And they're going to be walking through sand and these, these really abrupt dune-like shapes alongside the fairways. And I think at the U.S. Open in 2015 that spectators had a hard time getting around the course. There were a lot of sprained ankles, I believe. I think, yeah. they, they, I think they had to like eventually like strategically position paramedics around the course to, to be able to, to field all the sprained ankles. Well, people were eating it constantly out there, even at the, the U.S. Women's Amateur, where there wasn't as much of a crowd as there obviously would be for a U.S. Women's Open or a U.S. Open. People were falling down those dunes a lot because they are pretty sharp, right? They they have this peak and then they go down sharply. Well, and it's the grass like is slippery because it's like a fescue. So then the grass is Especially super in the slippery. Morning. Yeah. I, 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 I slipped and fell on my butt like on the second hole of uh, of the final match like and it just sort of came out of nowhere i was going down this dune and then all of a sudden i was i was on my ass like and and you look around and this was happening a lot it, at one point i was filming a, the train going by the 17th hole just as the players were playing that the, the train kind of comes by on that railroad that that runs by puget sound in between puget sound and the golf course it's kind of a cool little local color thing so i was filming the train and in the lower corner of my screen, a guy just comes tumbling into the frame, you know, falling down a dune. I didn't I obviously didn't expect or intend to catch that, but that that was just what was happening. And so I think that people who attended the 2015 U.S. Open probably didn't have a good on-site experience. They need to build grandstands there 
right? They need to set up that site so that it's not as kind of walking dependent. It should be a place where you can sit and watch because if you sit in one place and you're up high, you can see a whole lot of holes all at once. Get a pair of binoculars. You'll, you'll be able to see golf pretty much throughout the course. There are very few holes that you can't see if you're up high enough. And so I think that that's got to be the method that they use. But, you know, for a tournament like the U.S. Women's Amateur, if they bring a U.S. Amateur there, I think that it's it's really fun to to walk that course and look at the views. It's not the easiest walk in the world, but it's it's definitely walkable. It's a walking only course, in fact, when uh, uh, during regular play. And uh, I just had a wonderful time being there, seeing the sights, watching these great players play these holes in a strategic way. I thought it was wonderful, and I just sort of wished that bigger tournaments would come there with more frequency. Now, the the reputation of the course took a hit in 2015, not only because of the on-site spectator experience and what people said about that, but also because of the TV watching experience. People saw a brown course. People heard the players complaining about putting on broccoli, which is how Henrik Stenson put it. The greens died, basically, in, in 2015. They screwed up. But the course is terrific, and, and I wish that the uh, the optics weren't such that it's hard to take a big championship back there. Uh, what what are your favorite aspects of the golf course? It all starts with the firmness of the turf, and the holes are designed so that you can use the ground going into a lot of these greens. There are wonderful kind of feeding contours and rejecting contours. So, you know, depending on the angle that you're approaching a green from, those contours can either help or hurt you. And when your ball lands, it's not going to stay in the same place. It's going to run. You know, that's just one thing that enhances strategy. Um, there are individual holes out there that are just really memorable and, and stick out immediately. I think the variety of the course is outstanding. You play that course once and you're probably going to remember every hole because you're getting different looks, you know, different playing strategies with each hole. The holes really don't blend together which I think is an achievement because the site wasn't exactly ideal for golf uh, to begin with. It was this kind of mining place. And, you know, the mining operation had left some really interesting landforms, but it wasn't necessarily well suited to the game. And so they had to move a lot of dirt around in order to make golf work. And I think they did an excellent job of um, creating golf there, making it play well. But also, you know, to go on to another subject, the aesthetics of the course they retained some of the industrial look of the site in creating the golf course. And so I really like how the shapes of the golf course remind you in a way, not only of kind of Lynx golf, Irish Lynx golf, big spectacular dunes, but also it reminds you of industrial work in a way because the dunes are sort of so sharply shaped and, and they, they, they look kind of jagged. And they, they make you think of a big industrial mining operation, even as it's a, a very playable golf course. So I think that the look of the course is cool. There are some critiques to be made of the architecture out there. Um, I think I, I should mention that it was Robert Trent Jones Jr.'s firm that built this course and on site supervising the construction was uh, Bruce Charlton, uh, uh, RTJ2's lead associate, I believe. And Jay Blasey was also very involved in the uh, design and build of this course. And so there's a really talented team out there. Jay Blasey, uh, in particular, has gone on to be a very impressive architect in his own right. And uh, and so they did some really, really interesting things out there. 
but there are some other ways in which that you can critique the course. I would specifically zero in on the routing of the front nine, which I think is a little bit clunky in some places. There's a big walk between the third green and the fourth tee. And whenever I see that, I'm just like, you know, for a, for a pretty manufactured course, right? For a course where they were able to kind of build what they wanted, maybe they should have figured out how not to have that big walk between the green and the tee. On the front nine also, there's a couple of holes that kind of play straight up the hill, the main hill of the site in pretty similar ways. And I think that these were just sacrifices that they made in order to make other holes on the course work. They were looking to find the best and the toughest holes possible. And so the routing of the front nine in particular suffers a little bit because of that. But the back nine, I think, really clicks together well. The routing works better. I think that is the more consistent nine overall. So I think it opens a really interesting conversation because... I think there was a backlash with Chambers Bay and then Aaron Hills and, you know, they weren't back to back, but closely together, brand new golf courses. It was really a new trend, a new initiative, a new thought process with the U.S. Open. Yeah, this was kind of Mike Davis driven, right? Yes. This was Aaron Hills to 2017, right? Yeah, 20, so two years after. So, and and the you have these golf courses that were built, there were no, no history and they were built with the idea of championship golf and U.S. Open specifically in mind, both of these courses, Aaron Hills and uh, Chambers Bay. And I think there was this backlash because, you know, in the sense of uh, Chambers Bay had the, the putting greens, which was the big issue, I think. Like the the idea of greens and the sanctity of the championship was really like in question. Was Was this a good championship because it was you couldn't make a putt it was bouncing all around and then at Aaron Hills we had you know a par 72 which never happens in in U.S. Opens the wind didn't blow at a course that kind of is plays remarkably harder uh when the wind blows so you have a par 72 in the in 16 under winds and people are like this is too easy this is too easy and in both cases I think they got tough shakes because a Everybody always wants to complain about the U.S. Open in the course. That's like an annual tradition. And it seems like the USGA is doing all they can to stop that and, and potentially, you know, in a way that makes it a little bit less provocative and, and a little bit less interesting with their setup. But with these tournaments, they became kind of like the, the sacrificial lamb in a way. You know, these golf courses just have been, you know, in... in Ironically, the the Aaron Hills is hosting the U.S. Mid-Am this year, a similar thing like where this tournament, this course was really groomed and, you know, the USGA was very involved in the building of, of both of these courses for championship golf. And, and here we are, you know, five, six years later, seven years later, and these are hosting, you know, not even you know the US Women's Am is a is a high level USGA event but the Mid Am you know kind of a mid tier event for Aaron Hills where you know it was expected kind of if you talked in 2013 about each of these courses both of them were kind of Chambers Bay was open at that time but Aaron Hills was it was open also but undergoing modifications like these courses were expected to host many U.S. Opens. And with the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open schedule like release, Aaron Hills has a U.S. Women's Open coming in a couple of years. But 
there's very little Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills on the schedule otherwise. And these were, you know, and I think like, you know, if you go back in time and I think the knee jerk reaction centered around, this isn't where I want to win my U S open or U S women's open venues matter was the message from players to the, to the USGA. And that got them to remove these courses for the most part without history. But the reality is, it's like when you think about the these championships 50 years from now, the only way you get history at a venue is if you get to go to the venue, you know, and this combined with the USGA and the PGA, really both major championship organizations, both organizations gobbling up sites, booking out their championship for decades. It. <laughs> You know, there's no space for a new venue to actually become one of our iconic championship sites. And to me, it's kind of short-sighted because, you know, if you go back in history and read what what players were talking about, what, what they would say about certain courses when they were on the championship schedule in the early 1900s for the first time, there were critiques, there were players that were upset, there were revisions, there were, uh, there were modifications that happened to these golf courses. But like they didn't just get excommunicated from from the the opportunity to host and and especially given Chambers Bay in the location, it just seems to me if you're going to have a national championship, you have to have a national championship that's hosted in the Pacific Northwest. You can't just ignore parts of the country. And part of that, you know, with with the way they've booked it out, it's not just the Pacific Northwest. It's the Great Plains. It's the it's the Midwest. It's the it's this, you know, the South has has no, you know, it, there's very little venues there. Yeah. Well, just to give people an idea of how booked the U.S. Open is, for one, next year, LACC, Los Angeles Country Club North Course, Pinehurst number two, 2024, 2029, 2035, 2041, 2047, Oakmont, 2025, 2033, 2042, 2049. Pebble Beach, 2027, 2032, 2037, 2044. I mean, that just doesn't leave much space. And there are other courses booked for some of the other years. You know, Shinnecock has one coming up in its future. You've said this on the Shotgun Start previously. Pebble Beach and Pinehurst Number 2 in particular, those are great courses. Those are U.S. Open courses. The U.S. Open should go there. Should it go there three times a decade? No. <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't leave space for, as as you're indicating, fresh blood to come in, first of all. It also doesn't leave space for courses like Shinnecock Hills and the Country Club and other classic U.S. Open venues that need to be visited on a regular basis, but can't be because they've simply booked up the years so much at this point. Now, at first, the idea of these anchor sites. Pebble Beach, Oakmont, and Pinehurst Number Two, you know, kind of definitive U.S. Open venues being identified as such seemed like a good idea, and I think it is a good idea. I think that the USGA deserves some credit for yeah. leaning into classic courses like these are great, great venues for a championship. But maybe we've just gone a little bit overboard here by assigning so many future U.S. Opens to these this same kind of handful of courses. It just doesn't allow other courses to enter the Rota 
and it doesn't allow the the rota to be consistently refreshed. I mean, it almost makes you consider your mortality. Like, how old are we going to be in 2054 when when some of these championships are booked for? Who knows what the world is going to be like then? Why do we need to go that far forward in time in uh, stating what U.S. Open venues are going to be? So you get two dates open in the next you know ten years. And when you look across the next like 30, there are very few dates in there. I mean, Chambers Bay probably deserves a second shot. In all indications, they went and fixed the big problem, right? But the other thing that happens is like, hey, what if the greatest golf course in the world gets built next year and they want to host major championships? Why isn't there just space? There's no room. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what if it was the greatest course that is built and it's open to the public and they have like a great cause behind it and everybody's like, well, we want, we got to have a U.S. Like what, I think the anchor sites, and and I want to be clear, like you said, this was a good idea. But to me, they almost, they got a little overzealous with how much they went to these. And like, do I want to see Pinehurst number two and Pebble Beach once a decade? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, when you're looking at once every five years, yeah, I mean, five or six years, it's just, to me, that's that's a bit over the top. I understand why both those courses really want to have it. And, and I think this needs to be pointed out. Like, if I was operating a, a golf resort that charged six, seven, eight hundred $800 for greens fees... You know what I would want to do? I would want week-long commercials where the best players in the world came and played my course. Now, I'm not trying to discredit you know these golf courses' legitimacy for major championships. I think they should have them, and they should have them regularly. But I don't think these are the courses that should be going. That it, There shouldn't be any U.S. Open courses, given how many good venues and how big the country is, that get us opens every five to six years like that that's too much and i think that you know the ideology between behind the anchor sites is like the ability to retain some setup you know consistency is it's we we know we're going back there so we can do x y and z and we can ask for x y and z from the club from from the local government like there are things that make sense with this Mm -hmm. but you know when we look back and in this I mean, they announced the anchor sites, you know, what, two years ago? Yeah, something like that. It was around 2020. And I don't think anybody expected at that point that they were going to be booked almost completely up through 2050. You know, that. <laughs> right. I mean, and then you have you have just parts of the country that are ignored. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Golf Genius. What is Golf Genius? Well, it provides software solutions to over 10,500 private clubs, public courses, resorts, tours, and golf associations in more than 60 countries. Golf Genius also offers innovative cloud-hosted software tools that save golf professionals time and help them deliver great golf experiences. The company's best-known product is Golf Genius Tournament Management. This is the industry's leading tournament management software. We at The Fried Egg actually use Golf Genius Tournament Management to manage all of our events, and we've been really impressed by the comprehensive functionality and all the cool features. 
Another benefit of Golf Genius is its excellent customer support. The company is laser focused on customer success and has built a responsive, knowledgeable support team. This team includes PGA professionals who understand the challenges faced by club pros. So if you set up and manage golf events and would like to save a lot of time and hassle, you have to check out Golf Genius. All right, back to the episode. So what's your interpretation of why the PGA of America and the USGA are going so far into the future? Is it is it just kind of like an arms race at this point where I think it, the, the USGA is afraid that the PGA of America is going to book whatever course for, you know, 2053? Well, we better get them get them for 2053 before they do. I think it's partly that, right? I think it's um there are there are very clear lines in the sand. Like this is a PGA course or a USGA course. I guess one of them that that splits kind of the bill is is a uh, uh, Olympic club because right, they have yeah. PGA stuff and USGA stuff. But I think that's the main thing is is there there's competition between those two organizations and obviously the PGA now because it's in May cannot be hosted at a lot of places because of weather, right? You know, the upper Midwest and and which they had really gotten to a lot and and the northeast is is a little bit off uh, limits, so it creates a little bit of a, you know, and and I think that's one of the things you could point to as a good thing for the Frisco, you know, course being, you know, it gives Texas a major every once uh-huh. in a while, which is which yeah. is important, right? Um but I think that's the thing. It's like it's an arms race. And when you book out like this, I think what it also does, it gives each of the organizations leverage over the club slash course that they are trying to negotiate with. So if they are booked like they are now, they say, hey, we want you to host in 2028 or 2031. And here's the deal. This is what we need from you. And if you don't take this, we'll, we there's a bunch of other courses that we can go to, right? Like it creates scarcity. If you think about it from a business sense, right? It creates scarcity with your with your vendors. So then the vendors have to compete uh, with each other for your business. And and a lot of these club, like some of these clubs' business models are dependent on high level championship golf, like. Uh-huh. Because that high-level championship golf brings in money that week, but it also spurs a lot of organizations wanting to host big money Monday outings at their club that flip a lot of bills over the years. You know, so right. like a lot of these courses, like championship golf is fundamental, just like a resort for like the commercial and the local community. And and I want to host my Monday outing here. Not yeah. all of them, but some of them. And the booking so are so far out in advance creates a situation where if Club X wants to host a U.S. Open and 2037 is the only open year between now and 2060, then the USGA is in a really or the PGA of America is in a really strong position to say, well, you got to do these things in order to get that championship. And if you don't want to do it, then there's plenty of other courses that want that one year. Uh, and so it kind of strengthens them. But, you know, what they've had to give up is significant as well. Essentially, they've had to give up a lot of open dates to Pinehurst and Pebble Beach, which maybe wasn't that good of a deal for them. Well, I think it's the it's the commercialization. I, I think mm-hmm. like a lot of these, I think in the last 20 years, there's been a big realization, especially with the TV 
how how TV deals are going with with sports, right? These TV deals are getting so big that they realize how much money's at stake with these things, and that's another part of it. Is that they need more infrastructure, they need more grandstands, they need a bigger merch tent, so that it goes to that leverage point where we can say we need this, this, and this. And it's not just the course. It's I mean, Mike Wan and Mike Davis have talked about you know, working with the local government and states in order, you know, I think there's something they did with Pennsylvania. I can't remember exactly offhand, but they have something with uh, with Pennsylvania where, you know, there's they they're working directly with the state to make things happen, which, you know, as you, when you start to think about all the needs of a championship, I mean, like, just think about parking, road closures, all these things like these championships are really big things to put on and they reach far further than just the golf course. Right. Mm -hmm. And that might be why there's never going to be another one. in uh, at Olympia fields, you know, because of how difficult that was in in 2003. Why was it difficult? I just have, you know, you, you, you spend enough time in Chicago, you hear the stories of, of working with the, with the, with cook County and, and, uh, And, and that may be part of what's working against chambers Bay at this moment. The local government has a fraught relationship with Chambers Bay, and I'm not sure what the parking situation or the lodging situation was like in University Place out there, and uh, I'm sure there there may have been some issues. So, you know, obviously the Pinehurst area has been really easy uh, for the uh, for high level tournaments relatively. So that's that's part of the reasoning. So okay, one question I yeah, you know sure. here's like. I just I'm going to read off some stuff for you here with the women's now. Like, yes, similarly, it's very booked out. But the women's open, you have 2023, 2035, 2040 and 2048 at Pebble Beach. Uh, You have 2024 at Lancaster uh, in uh, in Pennsylvania. You have 2025 at Aaron Hills, 26 at Riviera, 27 at Inverness, 28 at Oakmont and 38 at Oakmont. 29 at Pinehurst. Only t- 2029 at Pinehurst. Yeah. Now that's interesting, isn't it? 2030 at Interlochen. 2031 mm-hmm. and 2042 at Oakland Hills. And 2034 and 2046 at Marion. So yeah. one of the things that immediately jumps out one year at Pinehurst. The other thing that jumps out is, you know, you have four Pebble Beach years, but they're more paced appropriately. Mm-hmm. You've got 12 years between the first playing at Pebble Beach in 2023 and 2035. You obviously go 2040 there, so five years, but then another eight. So mm-hmm. here's like, I just think the this women's schedule, to me, is actually like kind of put together the way you'd want to see it. There's there's still some openings. I mean, there aren't many. <laughs> um, there, there's not one 20, until 2032. <laughs> But but at the same time, like the pacing of it is better. You yeah, have and there's more courses. There's more yeah. courses. There's Pinehurst only has one in there, and all of a sudden, if a great golf course comes to be, you have open open space. There's no reason, really none whatsoever, for a tournament to be planned out to past 2031. Right. Well, when I was walking around Chambers Bay. The big thing I had on my mind was how great a U.S. Women's Open would be there. You know, I'm not totally sure about a U.S. Open at Chambers Bay. I think there's a lot of reasons that maybe that tournament wouldn't work quite as well there because of the crowd sizes and because I think that 
the lengths that the uh, players hit the ball now would really come to dominate that course. Now, it can be a long course. It was it was plenty hard for players in 2015, maybe not for all the right reasons, but well the golf ball might not go as far. Yeah, well if there's a rollback then then maybe it comes back into the mix. But just, you know, the thing that makes Chambers Bay special is the play along the ground. And I think that that's a little bit more accentuated in the women's game. I think it would be a terrific US Women's Open site and I hope that they get booked up at one of these open dates in the 2030s, but there's not an open spot until 2032 and I don't know. It, it, it's fine because they're going to a bunch of different courses. I love seeing Interlochen on there. I love seeing Inverness on there, right? Inverness is is in that mix. Mm-hmm. Aaron Hills, a modern course. I mean, Riviera, the women at Riviera. That's Fantastic. an awesome, awesome. Like you, you want to talk about West Coast. And I think it's a, it's a course everybody's so intimate with because of the men's tournament every year. But getting a women's open there, I mean, fantastic. I That'll think, be I great. Mean, and I, I really like what they've done. And I think it's a very uh, important to, to point out, like they have elevated the venue, the women's venues to a whole different level than than if you you know think back. We, we covered a, a U.S. Women's Open at Champions Golf Course in Houston. Like, you know, and this is not a shot at Champions. It's just, you know, Champions Golf uh, Champions Golf Club. It's just it's not Pebble Beach or or, you know, Riviera, you know. That that has been a big factor in the U.S. Women's Open and also the Women's Open, right, has gone to some odd courses. And we've seen a shift there where more kind of really substantial feeling classic championship courses are being introduced to those to those rotas. You know, U.S. Women's Open has been held fairly recently at Trump National Bedminster, Cordoval, right, <laughs> um, or Cordoval. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And so there have been some questionable U.S. Women's Open venues, and the future sites here are definitely promising. So um, that that's that's great. Say you were, uh, say I, you were John Bodenhammer tomorrow. What would be the first thing you'd change about about venue selection? And like, if you could, if you could make any tweaks to both venue, you know, both women's and men's, what would you do? Or or say you're Kerry Haig in charge of the PGA, what would you do? Well, they they can't change anything right now, but am I imagining that I yeah, I could change the free venue deals they've made? Well, I, first of all, just to drive home this point, I'm not sure that I'd book any more than 10 years in advance. And maybe that wouldn't be in the best business interests of the USGA or the PGA of America, but I think that it really hamstrings you if you're booking 20 years in advance because we we don't know how the game is going to evolve in 20 years. We don't know how these courses are going to change over 20 years. And we don't know what other courses are going to come online and become, you know, really legitimate championship hosts in 20 years. And so I think not booking more than 10 years in advance would be great. I'd love to see, obviously, Chambers Bay. Uh, back in the Rota, some more modern courses being experimented with. Kiowa was a fantastic host, and that's not really on the radar for these major championships right now. So that's an example of a course that could be introduced. I'd love to see the country club back. I'm not sure there's any plans right now to go back to the country club for the U.S. Open or the U.S. Women's Open. And I don't, you know, I think I don't think that club really wants to host a ton. So they're not as eager as some of these other clubs. If you could get them in like 15 years, but like then you look at the calendar and you're like, oh, well, there's like one or two options there. And then 
we're we're even more booked out. Yeah, and I I think that just uh, again this is reiterating a point, but I don't think I'd go back to Pebble Beach more than once a decade. I don't think I'd go back to Oakmont more than once a decade, and I wouldn't go back to Pinehurst Number Two more than once a decade. Even Shinnecock Hills at this point is getting a little bit of short shrift with these uh, championships because it is booked for 2026. Maybe they just didn't want to negotiate about the 2030s or 2040s, but there's nothing else on the books for uh, Shinnecock Hills. And that's every bit as iconic a U.S. Open and as essential a U.S. Open venue as Pinehurst Number 2, Oakmont, or Pebble Beach. And so that one should be a big part of the plans going forward. But it's not apparently one of these courses that gets the the 2050s treatment at this point. I mean, Wingfoot's not even on here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I one, think that's it? the crazy. And obviously, like, there are certain areas of the country. And like, if I was tasked with this, the first thing I'd immediately do is I would I would pull out a map and I would start to and I'm sure this has been done, but I would start to like put down pins on exactly where I think viable us open hosts are and i would kind of work from there and building this out and making sure that i i touch all these areas of the country and i i mean like i hate the term grow the game but like legitimately bringing the national championship to all parts of the country it should be a, a pretty important and and i know like you can't go to arizona in june like so the Southwest and is going to be nixed out, and I get that. But like, getting to and making an effort to get to areas of the country, and I am always a proponent of best like venues matter, golf courses matter. But in this case, like you do need to get to different areas, and it, when you look at this the the list, it's it's so geographically you know constrained to just certain parts of the country. Yeah, And I think that's like the number one thing that I think is falling short on because when you bring championship, when you bring the national championship and you rotate it around, it, that's the whole, the history of this thing. You should try and be making a, a conscious effort to bring it to all the, all the big areas of the country. And I, I think also that championship venue selection can play a role in encouraging the advancement of golf course architecture. Chambers Bay is a modern golf course. It is a different looking and playing type of modern championship venue. And I think that that kind of innovation should be encouraged. That That's part of what drove golf architecture for good or for ill for many, many decades. In the 20s, look at the courses that were hosting U.S. Opens. Now, obviously, the U.S. Open is on a completely different scale now. And there are so many other considerations than what the USGA in the 1920s had to deal with. But the 1920s, that's when you saw Winged Foot introduced. That's when you saw Oakland Hills introduced. These were new golf courses at the time. And there were energetic architects trying to build courses to challenge the best players in the world. I think when we book this far in advance with golf courses that were built many decades ago, that it kind of takes some of the impetus out of golf architecture and golf course development 
at least this uh, specific genre of it. You know, I like when golf architects are trying to build something that challenges the best players, but also suits average amateur players. I think Chambers Bay does that really well. And I'd love to see more architects try to do this. And, uh, you know, uh, having all these years be booked up for the U.S. Open and PGA Championship might take a little bit of the momentum out of that. In both those cases, the the developers of Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills sought out championship golf because it was available to them. And I think now the incentive is not there. So there's no, you know, there's no reason to try and build a championship golf, which leads to, as you know, you, you brought this up, like a one dimensional kind of architecture scene where mm-hmm. I think I, I, I think everybody that's listened to this podcast knows that we are all for playability. But I think that when you swing the pendulum to it's all and only about playability and not about testing, I think you've lost the plot a little bit. And it's important for golf and and shots to have consequence when you hit poor shots. And if we swing all the way to where it's just about designing for, you know, too long golf architecture was about designing for pros. But it's important to keep them in mind, you know, because you want to the best courses stimulate all levels of player. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you when championship golf isn't even considered, what happens is that, you know, there are very good players that can play championship golf that go and they, you know, and and I think that's just uh it's something to keep in mind. And championship golf is the, you know, and being able to host a U.S. Open is kind of the allure of a developer potentially going down the road of building one of these golf courses. Exactly. Not only individual developers who, who are just pursuing a business opportunity, but Chambers Bay, that project would not have gotten off the ground if the possibility of a U.S. Open weren't there. Investment is the key word here. Bethpage Black wouldn't have gotten that level of investment if the U.S. Open or the PGA Championship had not been a possibility for that course. And the same with Chambers Bay. I don't think Chambers Bay would have been built today because people who are making decisions about whether to move that project forward would have said, well, if we're going to get a U.S. Open, it's not going to happen until 2047 or whatever. So why should we put this much into this golf course? And Chambers Bay, you know, I didn't even mention how wonderfully woven it woven in it is in its community, like that it has beautified that part of that town. There are places for kids to play around it. There are walking paths through it. It's a whole thing. It's it's a big scene there, and it's really improved that place. And that investment, I don't think, would have happened if the future landscape of championship golf looked like it does now. Tory Pines has that too, and I think like my my resounding point, I think overarching is that you can't become a historic U.S. Open venue without the opportunity to host U.S. Opens, and it feels like that has been removed from everybody. You know, in a way, there's no no real path to it because there are you know contracts in place with with you know resorts and and clubs alike that have gobbled up really the all the opportunity to host and that is a something that the organizations like the USGA and the PGA of America can keep in mind is how are we incentivizing communities to invest in golf 
and championship venue selection is a big way to do that. And right now, I think that the approach to championship venue selection has moved away from incentivizing communities to invest in golf and has moved towards what are some efficiencies for the USGA itself uh, and how can we kind of lock in contracts competitively in order to best serve the organization. And, you know, maybe ultimately that's a good decision and it will enable the USGA to do more things outside of championships in order to encourage the, um, the advancement of the game and the, and the cultivation of the game. But, uh, man, it, it just seems like if, uh, a Chambers Bay project were on the table today, if it, if there were a possibility that something like this could be built in another city, it might not move forward. And I, I think that's, that's sort of a bummer. Yeah. I, I think you you've hit on like one of the most difficult conundrums I would imagine that the USGA finds itself in is is the delineation between being the governing body that's supposed to support all these things and advance the game, but also running an, a, a very efficient and and profitable business, even though they're a nonprofit. But like, you know, the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open, the those are the big ticket things that that really fund so much of the other stuff they do. So that's a, it's a really tricky situation. I do not want that that to go unnoticed is like they're trying to make as much money as they possibly can from those so that they can do as much with the you know for other programs as they possibly can. And I yes. think that has a lot to do with it. Like that is a you know there that's part of why it's so booked out, but you know you this is the thing that you lose when you do that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the big idea that we were working towards there, Andy. Um, thanks for chatting with me about this today, and uh, I hope that we'll see Chambers Bay on on some rota or another soon. We didn't really go through PGA Championship venues, but I don't know if that's a possibility or not. The USGA has kind of claimed Chambers Bay, but uh, I'd love to see more golf there because it was really fun to be there. But in any case, uh, let's wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you're not currently subscribed to the Fried Egg newsletter, I would highly recommend that you do so. Go to thefriedegg.com and click subscribe. And three times a week, you will get a fresh newsletter delivered to your inbox for free with writing from Will Knights, Andy Johnson, Brendan Porath, Meg Atkins, and occasionally myself. We think it's a a really cool product. And uh, of course, we would think that. But uh, I think you'll enjoy it. You get a nice variety of writing three times a week. So check that out. All right. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon.